All right, my friends, buckle up. It's about to get a little bit nerdy in here. And I don't mean like Bible nerdy. I mean like nerdy nerdy, and you'll see what I mean in a second. Let me pray for us before we get started, before we get nerdy, all right? Let me pray. Father God, as we spend this time yet again seeking your face and understanding the identity and the character of your son, Jesus, I pray, Father, that you would just fill us with awe, with wonder, with joy, with hope. Fill us with all of the, the things that come from knowing who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I pray as, as each of us speak today that your Holy Spirit would just take control, that we would disappear, that your Holy Spirit would remain, and that every one of us would be changed by what we hear from you today. I pray all this in the powerful, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. How would you explain a spaceship to an ant? How would you, how would you go about doing that? That was the question that I raised when I was asked to explain the Trinity to uh, our Grace Kids students. I was asked to make a video, and so I asked the kids, I was like, how would you explain a spaceship to an ant? Because think about it, an ant basically lives in like two dimensions, right? They kind of, they move side to side and forward and back, and, and that's it. You'd have to explain the concept of up. What is up and what is, what is up there? There's, there's sky, there's atmosphere, and then beyond that, there's what? There's vacuum, the cold, dark vacuum of space. How would you explain things like metal and combustion and, and vacuums? Like, how would you explain these types of things to an ant? You, you really couldn't. You couldn't because an ant just does not have the capacity to understand something like space travel. Well, in the same way, when we humans are trying to comprehend the nature of our Trinitarian, omnipresent, omniscient, all the omnis, God, when we try to, try to wrap our minds around that, our, our human minds are just not up to the task, are they? We can't, we can't do it. And so sometimes it's tempting to just not even try. Because look, if I'm not going to be able to understand it, then what's the point? But I think it's important to try. I think it's important to, to try to comprehend the, the majesty and the power of our God because, because it leads us to a place of awe. It leads us to a place of worship. It reminds us of, of who we are in the grand scheme of things. And I, I think it really sets our heart in the right posture when it comes to who our Savior is. And so that's what we're going to do. We are going to try to understand something that I know we won't be able to. We're going to look at a name of Jesus that, frankly, leads me to a place of just slack-jawed wonder, all right? The name of Jesus that we'll talk about today comes from the book of Revelation, which by itself is already pretty crazy and out there, but there's this very specific vision of Jesus, not as the humble carpenter from Nazareth, but as essentially the king of the universe. He's ruling over everything. He's making all things right. He's sitting on a throne. And in that vision, here's what Jesus says about himself. He says, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. So Jesus calls himself the alpha and the omega. What does he mean by that? Well, Alpha and Omega, this was a, a pretty simple expression that was used in the ancient world to kind of describe everything. Uh, so Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's kind of like if we were to say from A to Z, it, it's like saying the beginning point, the ending point, but also 
everything in between. So for Jesus to be a, a ruler or a king over everything, it means everything. Every, every person, every bit of creation, every point in time from the beginning to the end. That's who he is. He is the king. So, so that, I think, is a concept that the Apostle Paul was trying to capture in his own mind-bending poem about the nature of Jesus in Colossians 1. Here's what Paul said. Paul said, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made things that we, can't, that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. So, all right, that's a lot. Let's, let's think about what we just read here. Christ existed before anything else was created. He is, is supreme over, over all creation. He is, in other words, the Alpha and the Omega. That's what Paul's arguing. He says, look, look Christ is the source and the origin of everything, and he is the, the goal and the fulfillment of everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything, galaxies and electrons and light and gravity and squirrels and people and bacteria and hope and life and joy, all of it. He holds all creation together. So again, when we talk about Jesus Christ, we are not just talking about some guy that was born in Bethlehem a long time ago. We are also talking about the one through whom and by whom and for whom everything was created. Or to put it simply, Jesus is the king of all creation. He's the king of it all. So Right there, that's plenty to go and chew on because you think, how can you be the king over everything? But guys, I'm just getting warmed up here. So get ready to have your brain explode or melt or something because this is about to get really, really crazy. Are you familiar with relativity? All right, relativity. This is the, the concept Einstein was so famous for, for helping us understand. There are, I'm not an expert, there's a couple different ways of looking at relativity. There's special relativity, which shows us that if you are, are moving very, very quickly, your perspective on time is actually different than people who aren't moving quickly. So for example, if you were to get onto a spaceship and travel at half the speed of light, which is insanely fast, by the way, but if you could do that for one year, you would come back to find out that a hundred years had passed while you were gone. You only experienced one, everybody else experienced, experienced a hundred. That's crazy. Uh, general relativity shows that time is also affected based on, on your proximity to things that are very massive. So if you are very close to the sun or to a black hole, you experience time more slowly than everybody else. And I don't pretend to understand how that works, but what that has shown us and what, what scientists are now convinced of is that uh, space and time, which we usually tend to think of as completely separate things, are actually not separate at all. They're connected, they're intertwined, they're one. Scientists just call it space-time now, right? Like we think, of, we think of space as where we live and time is what happens to us, 
But no, they're actually the same thing. It's space-time. Now you're thinking, all right, space-time? Barry, what are, we, what are we talking about here? Aren't we talking about Jesus? Yes, we are. We are. Because here's the deal. If space and time are interconnected, if they are one thing, it means that time is also a created thing. God created space and time, right? Think about that. As God was creating uh, the earth and the sky and space and, and, and light and gravity, he was also creating time, space-time. So before God was setting the galaxies in motion, there were no seconds or minutes or hours. Time wasn't a thing. It didn't exist. God created time, which means he must, by definition, exist outside of it outside of time. So let's go back to that Colossians passage for a minute and think about Jesus. If Jesus Christ is, is the one who is the, uh, the, the creator, who's the one who holds all creation together, if he is the one by whom everything came to be, then it must also mean that Jesus himself, in some way that I can't understand, in some way he exists both inside and outside of time. Jesus Christ exists outside of time in some, in some way we can't understand. What that means is that we may be limited by our, our you know, constant moving through time in a, in a steady one direction. That may be our limitation, but that's not Jesus's limitation. Here's the deal. Jesus is not present just at this time. He's also present at every time right now, okay? Think about that. He's present at every time right now. What that means is that Jesus is, at this moment, comforting five-year-old you as you fall off your bike and scrape your knee. He is, at this moment, holding your hand on your deathbed as you breathe your last. He is, at this moment, watching as a zygote forms that will be you nine months later. And guys, he is, at this moment, sitting with you in this room breathing life into the broken places of your heart. He's, he's equipping you with skills and gifts and passions that you may not even know you have. He's doing that all because he knows that there is so much more still to come for you. Do you know how he knows that? He knows it because he is watching you live out your future calling, your future purpose right now. He's watching it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Guys, he doesn't just love you for who you are in this little snapshot of time. He loves you for all of you. From the beginning to the end, he loves you for all of it. Jesus knows you better than you could possibly know yourself. And I gotta tell you guys, he wants you to come alive. It is finished, he said. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, are you thirsty? To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. I'll tell you, thinking about this makes me feel like an ant trying to contemplate space travel, okay? Probably does for you as well. But really, there's only one thing that we need to know. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the King of all creation, and He wants to offer you life. The real question is just this, will you take it?
Okay, how'd you like to follow that? Well, thank you. One of the most familiar of all the names of Jesus, a name that we often hear in sermons and in songs, is the Lamb of God. Now, this name is so common that for most Christians, calling Jesus the Lamb of God is simply a part of the fabric of our faith. And here is a case in point, and I know I've mentioned this recently in another sermon, but if you've traveled I-65 to Chicago recently, you may have seen where someone has set up a large cross uh, along the highway and then placed a life-size model of a sheep next to it. Now, for most Christ followers, we know exactly what this display means. But I'm also sure that people with no background in Christian things wonder why on earth would somebody put up a cross and then put a life-size sheep next to it out along the highway? But yes, the Lamb of God is a well-known name for Jesus. But something most people don't realize is that Jesus is only called the Lamb of God one time in one verse in the whole of the Bible. And from all that we can tell, the people who actually heard Jesus called the Lamb of God that one time were probably as confused by that name as someone is when they drive by this cross and sheep display along I-65. That one time that Jesus is called by this, by this name is found in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And this first chapter in the Gospel of John is a chapter that tells us that the prophet John the Baptist, it tells us that he was creating a huge stir in Israel because he was telling everyone that the Messiah, God's Savior, was coming. He was coming soon. And he was, John the Baptist was saying, you all better get ready for his coming soon. Well, one day when John the Baptist happened to see Jesus walking towards him, and this was before Jesus had even begun his ministry, John saw Jesus coming and he shouted out, look, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you know the whole story of Jesus' life, then this makes perfect sense. But that one day when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, that statement would have been about as strange a statement as he could have made. And here's why. While it is true that the Old Testament is full of sheep and sacrifice stories, and nearly every Jew would have known all about these stories, there was almost no connection in Jewish thinking at the time between lambs and sacrifice and the forgiveness of sin. Here are a couple of examples of what I mean. The first Old Testament story that connects sheep and sacrifice is the story of Abraham. Abraham was the father of all the Jews, and Abraham had been ordered by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And while I know that it's difficult 
to fully understand why God would have demanded this of Abraham, this story ends with God right at the last minute providing a sheep to take Isaac's place. And to the Jews, the sheep in this story was always a picture of God's faithfulness and God's provision for those who put their trust in God. It was an important story, but it had nothing to do with forgiveness of sin. And then there's the story of the Jews when they escaped from slavery in Egypt and the sacrificing of the Passover lamb. In that story, each Jewish family was told that on a certain day, they were to choose a one-year-old lamb that had no physical defects, and they were to take special care of that lamb for four days, and on the evening of the fourth day, they were to sacrifice the lamb, and then they were to paint its blood on the doorposts of their houses. And we're told that during that night, after the sacrifice, God brought great judgment on the Egyptians by putting to death the firstborn male in each family in Egypt that didn't have that lamb's blood painted on its doorpost. The Passover lamb came to mean a lot of things to the Jews. It represented protection and it represented safety and freedom. The lamb stood as a sign of being members in God's family, but no one ever thought of the Passover lamb as having anything to do with taking away sin. Yes, there are numerous other sacrifices in the Jewish law that include sheep, even lambs. But if you look closely at those sacrifices, most had to do with things either you didn't mean to do or things you didn't even know you'd done. The Jews never associated a lamb sacrifice with forgiveness for a sin you'd knowingly committed. That kind of sin was called sin of the high hand. That's the kind of sin where you did it, you knew it, you knew it was wrong. And the only way that kind of sin was forgiven was by sacrificing a bull. Then there's this passage in Isaiah 53 that says God's suffering servant would be silent as he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, that he would suffer for other people's disobedience, and that his suffering would eventually lead to great healing. But the truth is that no Jew in the first century and no, pretty much no Jew in the 21st century believe that this Isaiah 53 passage about a suffering servant, that that was written as a prophecy about the Messiah. They had their thoughts about Isaiah 53, but they never expected or believed that their Messiah was going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter. I could go on and on about these lamb references from the Old Testament. But none of them would make sense of John's proclamation about Jesus being the Lamb of God. There just wasn't any context for people to think about a man who was like a lamb, a lamb that belonged to God, who would take away the sins of the world. 
Now we do know that the man who wrote down the account of John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God is the same man who had the amazing vision that became the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. His name was also John, and he was one of the original 12 disciples. And this John tells us that during his great vision, he saw a lamb in heaven standing before the throne of God, a lamb who looked like he'd been slain. Now, I know that this is an odd picture. A lamb that looked like it had been slain? And it's even odder because John tells us that when he saw this lamb, it had seven horns and seven eyes. But from everything we can tell, the lamb in this vision was Jesus. John says he heard thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels calling out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise forever and ever. And, And I can't think of anyone who would deserve this kind of praise besides Jesus. But this lamb in John's vision is never called the Lamb of God. And John didn't have this vision until at least 35 years after that one moment when John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. So what we have is we have a multitude of pictures of lambs throughout the Bible, each representing something very specific. But not once does any of these lambs make a direct one-to-one connection to what John the Baptist called Jesus that day, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? I've thought about this a lot, and then I I came to this realization. There doesn't have to be a one-to-one connection any place. There just doesn't. Is Jesus like the lamb provided to Abraham? Is Jesus a picture of God's faithfulness to us and his provision for us? Yes, he is. And is Jesus like the Passover lamb? Is he our protection and our safety? Does Jesus give us freedom and does he make us a part of his family? You bet. And is he like the suffering servant? In Isaiah 53, like him, he is him. And is he worthy of all power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise forever and ever? Yes, he is. And is it true that he has taken away the sins of the entire world? Yes, it's true. So I've come to the conclusion that John the Baptist in his great moment of prophetic declaration, simply gave us one more view of the grand picture of all it is and all that it means to call Jesus the Lamb of God. His first hearers may not have fully understood what John the Baptist was saying, but John the disciple knew that we needed to know about this moment so that we could connect all of these various lamb dots and be able to come to the fullest 
possible understanding of what it truly means to call Jesus the Lamb of God. Because Jesus is our Savior. And Jesus is our protector and our healer and our defender. The one who takes away our sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's not his last name, Christ, that is. Neither is it his first name, as in Christ Jesus. Christ was his role, his calling, his destiny, his title, that in time, yes, was coupled with his human given name so that he became known as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. It's like a guy named Sam whose job is in law enforcement being called Sam Policeman. Or Sally, who's an attorney, when people start calling her Sally Lawyer. As a matter of fact, throughout the New Testament, in the roughly 500 times that the name or title Christ appears, you'll see it accompanied with the definite article, the. The Christ. For instance, Matthew chapter 16 tells us when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And well, they replied, some say that you're John, some say uh, John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah and or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, no, I, I want to know who you say I am. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter uses that little definite article, the, the Christ, to imply that this Christ was someone who was legendary in his mind. Peter, like all young Jews, was taught that one day the, the Christ, would make an appearance. And I cannot help but think that when Peter is addressing Jesus and he says, you are the Christ, that's who we think you are, he's doing so with a certain amount or a large amount of awe. In essence, Peter was saying, you are the icon. You are the one. The one. Fascinatingly, this is what John the Baptist, and Tim referred to John the Baptist, the prophet who was prophesying during the time of Jesus, actually was a cousin of Jesus. He wanted to know this very thing. He was sent to prison, it tells us in Matthew chapter 11, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Christ, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 11. What Jesus says to him is, Yes, John, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cured, the deaf hear, 
The dead are raised to life, and good news is preached to the poor. So, yes, I am the one. I am the Christ. So what does this name, word, title, this calling, what does Christ actually mean? And this is very important because of all his names, this name was absolutely the most political and the most controversial and the name that got him killed. Christ, in Greek, was the anointed one. It meant one who was anointed, like with oil poured on your head. It's an equivalent. It's equivalent in Hebrew, and the reason why it was cho- Christ was chosen because the equivalent in Hebrew also means the anointed one, the Messiah. This is probably, no, not probably. When Peter said, you are, he did not say you are the Christ. Literally, he, he said you are the Messiah, which means you are the anointed one. You are the one. Now, in ancient Israel, anointing, the ceremonial act of coronation, I think we have an artist's rendition, a ceremonial act of coronation was of divine selection. You have been divinely selected. You are the person of the moment. You are the one. Sometimes priests were anointed. Sometimes prophets were anointed. And always kings were anointed. You are the one. Now in time, especially during the dark days of the demise of the Jewish kingdom, this phrase the Messiah came to imply not just any important leader or the leader of the moment, but the liberator, the hero, the one who would lead a resurgent kingdom of Israel as a warrior king. The Messiah, the Christ, took on the heroic meaning of a liberator, of an agent of change. And Jesus himself embraced the idea of this name Christ for himself. Here's a story from Luke chapter 4. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, which was his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read the scriptures and they gave him the scroll of Isaiah that was handed to him and Jesus unrolls the scroll and he finds the place where this was written in the scroll And he reads it aloud and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You can see what he's doing. He's really putting himself into the story. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has, and here's this word, anointed, which is the root word for Messiah. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. He sent me to proclaim that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And then he sat down and he said, That's happening right now. This is happening in your hearing. This was the heroic language of a liberator. Liberation from injustice and poverty and captivity and oppression and enemy, the separate, spiritual separation of people from God. All of this is inherent in the name Christ. The Christ 
was to be the one who would liberate Israel, establish a new national identity with a new constitution and single-handedly restore God's people to the glory that they experienced hundreds of years before under King David and Solomon. So you can understand why this term, the Christ, was seen as insurrectionist language to the empire of Rome. Right at this time where Jesus had come into the world and was going about his introducing his kingdom, right about this time is when the emperor cult or the religion of worshiping the emperor was taking root, it was taking off. One of the first emperors who was declared a kind of a god-man was uh, Caesar Augustus, who very much plays a part at the time of Jesus. And so while Rome and most of the Middle, Middle Eastern world was actually worshiping the God-man, Caesar Augustus, here is the Christ. And you can hear this concern, this political uh, concern in the voice of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, when he says this right near the crucifixion of Jesus before he crucifies him, he says, what should I do with this Jesus who is called Christ. Now the funny thing though, Jesus was not seeking to topple Rome or even challenge Jewish leadership. As Jesus laid out his constitution, his kingdom set of values, they were shockingly ironic. They did not sound like liberator policies or hero strategies. Jesus, the Christ, called for and demonstrated an inversion of power where the first becomes his last and the last is first. Where the poor in spirit and the meek inherit everything. He called for and demonstrated a commitment for justice for the poor, the end of the marginalization and oppression of women, the elimination of tribalism where Jews and non-Jews are together under God, Deference to enemies, turning the other cheek. Suspension of judgment of each other. The elevation of love to supreme importance. The love of God and the love of man put in the two greatest commandments. All of this bathed in radical self-sacrifice. All of you, Jesus, the Christ, said, should take up your cross daily. This was the agenda of the one. The Christ. And it's still his agenda. Jesus Christ, the liberator of the world. Jesus Christ, the hero of the cosmos. So God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, Alpha and Omega, Lamb of God, the Christ. This is way beyond theoretical. This is personal. 
You love us. You care for us. You died for us. And you want to lead us if we would but follow you. So today, on behalf of your people, I say we're listening. We acknowledge you for who you are. And we will follow the Christ, the one, into this world, living as you would have us live, representing your values. We pray in your holy name. Amen.